Ecumenism as a word is a neologism. I didn't get into that in the article. It's a new word. It came into vogue around the time of Vatican II, and it was the Catholic way of referring to what was known as the interfaith movement in such groups as the World Council of Churches, which was basically a Protestant group. Um, the Pope, I think it was Pius XI, absolutely forbade Catholics to be involved in the World Council of Churches, refused to allow the Catholic Church to be as part of it. And there were decrees around that same time forbidding Catholics to participate in certain ecumenical activities. Obviously, that changed uh, over the years. Uh, if you want to talk about dialogue with non-Catholics, I mean, yeah, that's something that's that's historical, right? Catholics, even the presence of non-Catholics at ecumenical councils, right? That's a thing. I mean, Arius was at the first council of Nicaea. The actual heretic that they were there to condemn was there, and he was allowed to speak. Now he was condemned and immediately exiled, so it didn't go so well for him. Uh, but but uh, it, but you know you could look at the history of ecumenical councils and you'll find I mean there were even by the way pagan observers at Vatican at um, excuse me at um, the Council of Nicaea the first Council of Nicaea and you know 325 so you're talking about the, the very first ecumenical council so it's not as if non-Catholic observers were were, were never allowed until Vatican II that's not true. Uh, and the idea of dialoguing with non-Catholics is something that we've we've always done. Uh, it's it, it, this, before the word dialogue was made kind of a buzzword, right? I mean, we're dealing in a modern bureaucratical setting uh, in the church where you've got a lot of buzzwords, words that have been sort of drained of their original robust and fortified meanings, and they've been given. Um, these very shallow meanings and just turned into into words that you know everybody talks about it people dialogue about dialoguing uh, dialogue itself became an epiphenomenon about which we dialogued rather than a process that has a, a purpose and the purpose in this case is to bring non-catholics to the true faith which is the catholic church Okay, so, but ecumenism, you know, the ecumene is the inhabited world, right? That's what the, that's the concept is in Greek. Um, so, in other words, the, the big wide world, but the world not as land, but the world as inhabited by humans, right? So, when you had an ecumenical council, that meant a council of bishops from all of the inhabited world, at least that part of it that was christened, right? That part of it that had bishops in it. So, that's a very different concept than ecumenism, which even to use that word with the concept of Christian unity implies that there's something beyond the Catholic Church that's Christian, that's truly Christian. And that in itself is a problem. Uh, but let's not dig too too much further into it, because this is really about synodality, but I'm making a comparison between ecumenism and synodality. I recall meeting a priest almost 20 years ago who was the head of ecumenical affairs for the Archdiocese of Boston. We were both guests in an other priest's rectory where we were invited to meet the new Melkite bishop of the eparchy of Newton. This is in uh, Massachusetts. The most reverend Cyril uh, Salim Bustros. It was purely my connection to Brother Francis, himself a Melkite from Lebanon, that landed me this unusual invite. 
During the small talk that happened before the dinner, I was seated near the ecumenical priest from Boston. He was a very agreeable man and quite an engaging conversationalist. As we had this sanguine temperament in common, it was not hard for us to find something to talk about. When I heard of his position at the Chancery, I asked him if it was all right to put a question to him about his work. He affably agreed, somewhat to the chagrin of our venerable Maronite core bishop, uh, who was the host of this uh, dinner. It was a dinner. Uh, to my question, what is the goal of ecumenism? The head of the Office of Ecumenical Affairs for the Archdiocese of Boston did not really have an answer other than to seek Christian unity. I asked him what that would look like. In other words, what is the actual goal or purpose of ecumenism? How do we know when the goal of ecumenism has been accomplished? The answer was a memorable one. Quote, we'll know it when we see it. End quote. I perhaps exceeded the bounds of social convention when I pointed out that his work seemed to be without a purpose. Upon reflection, I think his answer was supposed to be profound, as is the pseudo-profundity, it's not about the destination, but the journey. In fact, the word synod um, has the general concept of walking together. You know, like, and, and so <laughs> I noticed that some of the uh, people explaining that what the sinner and citadel is all about is that the word sinner comes it, it, it comes from the book the word journeying together which I don't think is exactly this exactly correct etymologically um, journeying together you know so the this is uh, one of the tendencies of modernism and I use modernism in the generic term, not so much ecclesiastical modernism as a condemned heresy, but the, the broader concept, the philosophical concept of modernism that Pius X borrowed from to condemn it as a heresy. The concept of, one of the concepts that's embedded in modernism is to reduce everything to process, right? It's evolution, it's dialectical materialism in the case of Marxism, it's dialectical idealism in the case of Kantianism. Modernity and modernism, philosophical modernism, makes everything process. It's this kind of um, neo-Heracliciism where, where you know, nothing's ever the same. It's not the same river. You know, you jump in the same river twice, you're not in the same river because it's all flow, right? Everything, pantarai, to put it in Greek, um, all things flow, right? This is part of the very modernist air that we breathe to reduce everything to process. So the person who says kind of in a doped out way, it's not about the destination, man, but the journey. That's what we're talking about here. And that sort of doped out idea of the journey, not the destination, that's, I think that's largely embedded into what ecclesiastical ecumenists, who are also involved now in the synodality thing, that's their new buzzword, the, these, these are all related to that kind of doped out concept of it's all about the journey, man. All right, so it struck me as shallow at best when I heard it and empty at worst. And that it is empty is exactly what makes it a MacGuffin because there's nothing to it, as Hitchcock would say. It really isn't anything. But without it, the action of the main characters in the drama makes no sense at all. In the case of the church, what is the action that the MacGuffin of ecumenism makes sense of? To put it simply... 
watering down the Catholic religion so that there is nothing to it to offend those who do not believe it. We have changed our mass so that a Calvinist cannot reasonably find fault with it. We have watered down our morals so that secularists are unchallenged by them. We have made Lent something that a worldly bon vivant would not find objectionable. We have transformed our social teaching into a polite bourgeoisie liberalism that vaguely resembles those BLM signs found on the lawns of prosperous, guilt-ridden progressivists of European descent, and lots of other things that we've done in the name of ecumenism to alter Catholicism to accommodate it to the, the votaries of the world and not to our own tradition, right? Everything in the faith took an ecumenical dimension. By the way, those two words, ecumenical dimension, show up 22 times in the 1992 document, Directory for the Application of Principles and Norms of Ecumenism. That was an update under John Paul II of an earlier directory on ecumenism. Uh, So much of the faith, of course, was lost along the way. And this, for an elusive goal that we are assured by high-ranking ecumenists, is not about bringing people into the Catholic Church. So, in other words, we give up stuff that's Catholic, and then what do we get in return? Well, we don't know. We'll know when we see it. You know, something like... Uh, Christians getting along better, or having you know, being able to work together. Uh, it's and yet I'm deliberately saying it in a stupid way with that that upward vocal inflection. Um, it's not it's not a concrete goal like you know, say the missionary conquest of the world for Jesus Christ and His Church. There's a clear goal, ambitious. Yes, it's also the one goal the Church was given by our Lord. Uh, which is you know kind of the thing that gets swept under the carpet of all this ecumenism. I know that there are Catholics engaged in ecumenical dialogue who labor to bring people into the church. I have met one, a committed Catholic scholar who has worked at the very highest levels of official ecumenical dialogue. And when I say highest levels, I mean that. He was tasked as a um, consultant to the Holy See on this very thing, and he participated in dialogues with Lutherans. As it is, as a scholar, he is a um, an expert on the Council of Trent and its doctrine concerning justification. Um, now, he assured me, though, that he himself is a rare bird in that aviary of ecumenism. Um, and apparently, he, he raises eyebrows when he wants to defend the church's teaching and argue with Protestants about the truth of the Council of Trent and the Catholic teachings concerning justification, for instance, 